Hi, welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 101, and today I have Dr. Andy Galpin. Hi, Andy, how are you doing? Fantastic, man. Pleasure to be 101. That's an honor. I know, I know. Well, as, as I was saying, I don't pump out a lot of episodes, but um, I'm, um, I guess up until today it was all about uh, quality rather than quantity, but now we're just, <laughs> now we're going to go downhill. Um, so, um, just before I uh, get into the topic of conversation, but loosely I will um, headline what we're going to talk about, which is how uh, nutrition and or diet um, can influence adaptations to strength and conditioning. Um, so before I sort of go down that pathway and why I want to talk about that, um, perhaps if you could just tell folks who you are and what you're up to. Sure. Well, I have to say I've done hundreds of podcasts now, and that's the first time I've had a, a host talk trash about me before we get started. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just trying to uh, establish the uh, the hierarchy here. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Oh, hey, good on you. This is why you're different. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so I'm a, a, the co-director of the Center for Sport Performance at Cal State Fullerton, and then the uh, director of my individual laboratory. So the center itself has uh, biomechanics labs, athletic training labs, exercise physiology labs, strength conditioning, and then my lab, which is the biochemistry and molecular exercise physiology lab. So uh, we're out here again at Cal State Fullerton, and, and we do research on all things human performance. Uh, and I, I specify in muscle biopsy uh, and looking at things from the cellular, molecular, and occasionally catabolic. Very cool, yeah. So, I mean, you and also, I mean, how much interest or how much time do you spend outside of the lab and actually, um, <laughs> I mean, that would be interesting. Yeah, I actually, uh, so I'm actually a bit like you, but probably a little bit of the inverse where yeah. I'm not just a full time academic. Mm. Um, that's my job, but I work with a lot of professional athletes, um, particularly of most quantity are combat sport athletes. So a lot of boxers, wrestlers, UFC fighters. Um, I have my own little tiny podcast. Uh, it's just like a nine episode total. So it's not so far. So far. Well, it's we just do like nine, literally like a calendar year. Cool. Like that's yeah. So um, it's quite different. It's almost like an academic lecture where we build it for a few months and then, mm. uh, and then I've got my website where I put. A, Basically, I'm trying to put every one of my academic lectures up on that website and just give it away for free. Nice. Uh, just take some time. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then, yeah, I do a lot of this stuff. I have a book that just came out. Um, so unplugged. I would yep. probably say, say, what's that? Unplugged. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. unplugged. Well, well uh, at the end of this podcast, we'll, um, I'll, um, yeah. I'll extract all of these uh, bits and bobs out of you. So. Cool. Yeah, I mean, look, everyone that listens to this this podcast will know that my, my basic sort of underlying theme is science to practice. And I was discussing that with you um, off air just now. I say off air like this is a radio show. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, my, you know, as you know, my, my interests are primarily as a practitioner and um, mm. I'm a physiologist uh, as in practitioner, not a scientist. Um, but nutrition, performance nutrition is my thing. And for a long time now, I've, you know, I've always found it interesting how we use knowledge from science um, 
and, and, you know, we attempt to translate that and apply it into practice. And I've, I've had many podcasts talking to loads of experts on different things. And we've, we've talked about mechanistic stuff. We've talked about applied stuff. We've done a lot on um, sort of uh, more sort of research methods type stuff, which I find very interesting because my own journey has been from not understanding things very well to, um, you know, uh, finding out how to understand things well you know various means of education interviewing people like you um you know it's a fascinating journey for all of us and i think sometimes people don't don't realize just how complicated it can be to take that information and apply it into practice and before i get into this topic today i thought that would be a good thing just to quickly talk with you because people do often assume you know science is is science and it's been published therefore it is it's fact and of course there's huge problems with that isn't there what i mean what what would you like the listeners who are interested in this science to practice concept you know so i'll give you two quick examples Uh, the first one is Karl popper the philosopher and he basically said science it's not a noun it's an adjective so it's not a thing it's not a truth it's something you are doing it's an action and it doesn't prove anything, it just reduces uncertainty. So, it, I mean, you're, you're in your lab right now, and, and I've seen your lab, and I've seen a lot of the things you do. There's no way you know exactly what to do with an app when they walk in because you saw a paper. There's no way. But after 20 or 30 years of research, it does help you reduce the uncertainty to say, okay, this athlete had A, B, and C, but didn't have B and E. Therefore, I think this is where we're going to start hammer. But you don't know. Like it's, you still don't know. And so it just reduces uncertainty. So the less we can treat science, especially the biological sciences, the, the physical sciences, like chemistry, sorry, like physics and stuff are pretty solid. But biological sciences are it's a huge guess for this problem. So science helps us reduce that guess and shorten the time it takes us to figure out the real answer. But it's not an answer. Um, I would say it this way, that scientific truth is just a lack of perspective. So when you think, you uh, this is true, this is absolutely how it works, it's probably because you haven't considered enough different scenarios yet. And, and I can give the listeners a very quick example that's a nutrition science example. So uh, you can look these papers up. Um, I forget their name, but one of them is by first author Van Hall, I think. Second author, Carruthers. So two labs, and they both want to look at basically uh, post-exercise consumption of protein versus protein and carbohydrate mix. Right, so these are two independent studies with kind of the same thing. So I bring them both up. If you didn't believe me after one, you can look at the other. But what they did is they said, okay, we know carbohydrate post-exercise Generally, the optimal thing for subclinical. All right, so this is biopsy. Do a bout of exercise, probably cycling. Who cares? Uh, and then just biopsy. I think 24 or 48 hours later, see how much muscle glycogen resynthesis occurred. You know whether they got carbohydrate post-exercise or whether they got a combination of carbohydrate and protein. And I believe in both cases they were isoporic. So the protein group got a reduction of carbohydrate, and those exact calories were replaced with protein. So the both groups have the same amount of calories. So pretty simple stuff, um, really important. 
the interesting part is really addressing your question, which is, in both cases, they found basically no difference in muscle glycogen recovery between the two groups. Okay, great. That's the data science. The practitioner, the application side knows this. Okay, what does that mean? Mm. And so now here, this is the beauty, and I'll, I'll, I'll throw you in the fire here, because you teased me earlier, I'll give it back to you. <laughs> oh dear. So here you go. What's the title of those papers, or what's the conclusion? Should you or should you not protein dose exercise? Mm. Mm. Well, it depends, doesn't it? Context. Yeah. Yeah. So the groups both titled their paper basically saying, you don't need protein post exercise, it didn't help recovery. But I look at it and said, Actually, that tells me I don't need as much carbohydrate post-exercise. So this is two totally different applications. You would coach an athlete to do two, two totally different things, and you both be 100% correct. Hmm. And, and that's the thing that people have to realize. Like science, science is always also about, like, I'm not disagreeing with you that you made up data or bad data. I'm just seeing a different result because of that data. And then, of course, we didn't talk about other aspects of recovery or you know, what happened to protein synthesis or any of the other thing. But that's how science works. And it, those are amazing papers. They were very helpful. It progressed the field. Kudos to all those authors. But this is you sitting home as you're listening. This is the type of thing that when we say, like, science isn't proof. This is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, you're mirroring what many of the guests I've had on this, this show um, who have the same mindset as you. Um, in fact, I, I would bring listeners back to, um, it, it was quite a sort of a heated uh, podcast in, in terms that there were some potentially controversial things, but I had a really, I mean, one of my favorites was with Professor John Hawley, all about, oh, right. all sure. about the whole sort of integrative uh, biology perspective and say, you know, you've got to consider a lot of things. <laughs> And don't don't run away. You know it, I, the reductionism issue. I think is a yes. is a problem, yes. isn't it? Yeah, you know it, yeah. you're right. It, it, as you go towards the lab, it has to be reduced. But it's it's the translating it back the other way. People forget that it, you know we need to do we need to do something with the fact that it's been reduced and or at least be sensitive to that fact, which just doesn't happen. I mean, when, on social media. You know, you see, I mean, it's amazing uh, just how popular it is now to do anything from infographics to, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you know, we do that, but we, we try and add context into it always. And, um, but I, I think it, you know, if you can simplify something to, you know, an infographic or you can simplify it to, you know, a sexy soundbite. You know, you have to acknowledge that you've also simplified it too far, possibly. So you have to be really careful how you're going to generalize that. And I think, I think, I mean, that's why we try and do what we do with this podcast is just try and have, you know, loads of definitions, loads of context. My, my middle name for this podcast is context. Uh, <laughs> so listen, Andy, let me, um, let me bring us a bit on, uh, on target. So you know, we, we I, I talked about the title being how nutritional diet plays a role in adaptations to strength conditioning. And the reason why I wanted to talk about this is because strength conditioning, very cool, loads of science. Uh, I've interviewed quite a few people in that realm too. Anything from periodization, you know, with all sorts of people. 
um, you know, some physiology, lots of molecular biology stuff. Um, I mean, you know, Keith Barley, Hamilton. I mean, loads, loads of big, loads of big names. Abs, uh, you know, I, I'm missing loads of people out. But what I wanted to try and do with you was was get into some of these mechanisms and things, but just try and keep some reality on it, um, because in the same way that things are reduced too much, we often talk about nutrition just as calories or protein or whatever. We also talk about strength conditioning just as you know um, squats or whatever. But of course, all of these things combine, and and. It, I mean, it gets complicated, obviously, as we're inferring. But so let, let me just introduce my paradigm, which is that diet is a powerful method to alter substrate and hormone availability to skeletal muscle. Um, and, and that in turn affects metabolic processing and adaptations to training. So the, the, the reason why I'm mentioning that is because if you start thinking along those lines, you start to realize, of course, there's all sorts of stuff that's going on. Um, so... The background for our discussion, and we may fly well off path on this, but it, you know the things I wanted to get into is um, well, diet can alter events that impact acute responses to exercise and, and chronic adaptations to training by a variety of mechanisms, and it's worth getting into what some of those mechanisms are. Um, from my perspective as a performance nutritionist, you know uh, the factors I'm often thinking about is. Um, nutrient quantity or total uh, quality as in type and timing so total type and timing we use on this side of the pond and over there you guys tend to refer to quantity quality and timing and that most research and this is my big thing most research focuses on how how diet or training affects acute responses um, and not so much about chronic adaptations so where do we start with this? It kind of gets difficult. Maybe, maybe you could you could hit this up first with giving us a basic understanding of, of some sort of a pathway of adaptation because it's not it's not an isolated set of events. I mean, something mm -hmm. starts um, mm -hmm. and results with something. Um, it's a very difficult question, but perhaps you could you could you could give us an idea. And obviously, this this could be a whole degree in itself. So I don't expect a complete and full answer, but. Just to elaborate would be useful. I feel like I'm going through my conference exams right now. <laughs> this is your, kind of question. This, yeah. this, this is a PhD viper, buddy. <laughs> what a, I remember one of the questions I got for that was, they had six hours and said, explain to me the physiology during a marathon. Go. Oh, <laughs> all right, here we go. Yeah. Uh, no, but, but I, I think you brought this up. I'll start maybe broadly. And yeah. Maybe you can go over your specific yeah. question. Which is, I think you nailed it. Uh, I say I like to describe it as binary, right? So we like to think of the world like mathematics, and that it's binary. So it's, it's on or off, it's one or it's zero, and that's that's not even close to how the thing works. Um, we also like to give silly analogies, like like the, you know the body is like a a car or, or a machine, but it's not in a sense because it's an organic dynamic system. So in a car, if I take out the axle. The car doesn't drive. But in the body, if you take out the axle, it will find another way to make an axle. Or it'll replace it, or it'll figure out how to ride the car, drive the car without an axle, period. It doesn't care. And that's where it becomes really difficult whether we're studying things at the molecular level or, or cellular level, hormonal level, because just because you alter or increase or decrease, it doesn't mean everything else stays in the same. 
it all changes in response to that number, so then we don't know what we're looking at. So it's virtually impossible for us to truly isolate anything in humans. And this is why people like Keith Farr will do you know, knockout models in, in animals, because you get that control like you were alluding to earlier. Mm. But that's why we can't do that in humans, of course, except um, actually, did you see that a few days ago they, they just announced uh, in Nature Reviews, they made that call for doing knockout model of humans? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> right, the, we're only recording audio here, but to note to the listener, there was some major eyebrow raising going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's the biggest thing is, is we, we tend to say, okay, like, um, I'm going to look at recovery from a, this acute bout of exercise, I'll take a biopsy, and we'll look at these four or five signaling proteins, and we have to account for both, for, in this example, how much total protein is there, and then how much is activated, and then actually the way it's activated, phosphorylated, that can alter how it, it, the action it has. So a certain type of phosphorylation will do a different action than another type of phosphorylation, but then the whole system, the other thousands of proteins respond to that, and that may or may not result in genetic expression, which may or may not result in an alteration of protein. And we see that very clearly. I mean, the, the obvious example is if you look at, say, the acute hormone response to about strength training. So we see a very clear change in a hormone, but that doesn't always necessarily translate into anything. So, uh, I mean, we've seen this work pretty clear, right? Stu Phillips has been about as loud in this as he possibly can, where, like, just because you have an acute rise in testosterone plus exercise, that doesn't necessarily mean six weeks later you're going to have any more muscle mass. Mm. And if we take it to the next level and we take a biopsy and we see an acute rise in mTOR and AKT and, and any other anabolic or uh, growth producing signaling proteins, that doesn't always result in you having more muscle six weeks later. Gene expression, same thing. So you have the expression of these genes that are known to cause muscle growth and they go up 300 fold or whatever. That doesn't also necessarily mean you're going to have more muscle six weeks later. So they're all indicators. We know that they have mechanisms. So we know that when you activate mTOR and leucine's available, you have this mechanism for muscle growth. But in the human biology, it's just a really complicated system. It's only one marker and a few muscle cells that, that are, that, of which your body has trillions. So it, it's really, really complicated. It's helpful and it does give us information. We're fooling ourselves if we think we took one biopsy and measured seven genes and 30 signaling proteins and that tells us exactly how a body's going to respond six weeks later. I mean, that's pretty silly. Um, and to make it worse is, again, we become more and less sensitive as time goes on. So what caused a response week one, a year later, two years later, may or may not cause a response, or you may have an entirely different response. And we just don't have any data for things like that. So, yeah, it's not that this stuff is useless. It just has to be interpreted with caution. Yeah, I mean, this is why I like talking about this stuff is because it's just the realization, and this comes up all the time, and, and when I say what I'm about to say comes up all the time, it comes up with the leading experts in a field like Stu Phillips um, mm. um, and, um, you know, Kevin Tipton as it relates to uh, protein. I've interviewed those guys a bunch of time. Um, you know, Keith Barley, Hamilton. What's interesting about those guys is uh, one, uh, Lee was a PhD student, but of course they have um, obviously graduated years ago, but um, 
they have different points of view now, but they both yeah. can agree to disagree. And I, you know, stuff like that make, it sort of blows my mind. Uh, uh, and, and really, it just boils down to the realization that we really don't know very much. So actually, oh, we, sh- we should just talk about fishing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you, what you have to consider, I think that the biggest thing that can help you is, is you're a student listening to this show, or if you're a young faculty or even a senior faculty. What I always try to do is I try to keep in context the lens in which a person sees the world. Mm. Because that determines a lot of what's going on. I mean, if you, if you ask, I was fortunate enough to work under Dave Costell mm. wow. as a PhD student, or mm. I should say work occasionally with him because he was, yeah. he was pretty much retired. Mm. So I don't want to embellish my history or anything like that. But mm. the point is, if I asked him a nutrition question, well, he's clearly going to look at it probably from the perspective of an endurance swimmer, cyclist, and runner. So if I just ask him a question, hey, what do you think about X post-exercise or this supplement? He's initially going to go from that perspective of, well, I've looked at it in a thousand things, but they're always under those umbrella, usually of endurance, running, cycling, or swimming. But if I ask that same question to somebody who comes from a strength training background or somebody who comes from a diabetes failure background, then you're going to get entirely different answers. And I do my best, and I know you do your best, to try to lay that context every time I give an answer. Mm. But a lot of experts don't. And so you're, you're sitting there like, wow, why do these people disagree? Like, I'm so confused. Who do I believe? Well, if you step back and go, oh, well, he's focused on muscle growth, and he's focused on exercise recovery. Oh, these are actually two different things, so they're not even disagreeing. They're just talking about two different outcomes, so um, yeah, I, that, that helps people a lot. Yeah, no, well, the, I, I talk about this a lot because that's my main, my area of interest with my own doctoral research is on how we, well, I'm going to use the word epistemology just to blow it away. Oh, sure. Yeah. So that's my thing, is the epistemology of expert practice and how we how we use knowledge and interpret knowledge and apply that it's bloody complicated i mean you know it is for me it's an entire thesis you know is is tackling this particularly from my own practice and my own very long and bumpy journey but Mm. i I would go i would go one step further than just the lens but it's also the ears because you know you you observe this with the lens but also when you translate it there are there are ears to that message which also has varying levels of capability. And then, of course, you can use analogies of language like English and American. We, we, mm-hmm. we both apparently speak the same language, but, we, <laughs> but, we, but, but there are really profound differences sometimes and, and also in how we understand each other sometimes. And I, I, think, I think it's when, when this is out in the open, one has an appreciation for this issue. You then... You then you can appreciate that things get lost in translation. And it's, it, that, I think, is important because not only does that apply to the world that we live in, but it also applies to the, the science. And, you know, when we're talking about the translation of, you know, genetic material or, or, or chemical messengers or whatever, it, 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 you know, it depends on how you're understanding um, how that's happening and how it's going down. And there's just huge levels of what if it depends in context. Um, yeah, I, I do this. Yeah. I, I play this trick with my students at the beginning of every year because you did highlight something mm. very good about the ears of the audience member who you're talking to. Yeah. So I'll show them a picture of somebody um, 
doing a deadlift with a really rounded back, a flexed lumbar spine. And they're about to do the deadlift. And then I show them a picture of somebody doing a front squat and then like all these different exercises. And I say, okay, which one of these exercises is being performed wrong? And they go through it and they're all like, ah, oh, easy. This is like the first day of class kind of thing. And they're all like, oh, it's a deadlift. And I'm like, no, it's not the right answer. <laughs> I'm like, like, what? And then they go to the next one. And they all find something in one of the exercises. And I'm like, nope, wrong, wrong, wrong. Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you don't have any idea why this person is doing this. So, for example, if you're deadlifting with a rounded back, it's almost, almost surely going to be a problem. Like, few of us would, would disagree there. But there are some scenarios in which putting your back in flexion is, is potentially beneficial for therapeutic reasons, rehab reasons. Now, like, I'm not saying doing a 300-pound deadlift with a rounded back is almost ever advisable. But the picture has, like, five pounds on each side. Barbell, mm. right? I'm like, you don't have any idea what the person's doing. So if you're arrogant enough to look at a very small snippet of somebody's training program or something that's said one time and, and you don't realize who they were talking to or why they were saying it, then that's your fault for misinterpreting it. And how dare you have the arrogance to walk around and be like, oh, this is girl, this guy, they don't know what they're talking about because one time I heard them say X. Well, like, who are they talking to? What was the purpose? Were they translating everything? Were they, were, they, were they trying to just deliver information to that person that's actually needed? So there's a difference between individual truth and the net result of information. I mean, this is epistemology, right? Absolutely. Or as Bertie like, says, truth or truthiness. Yeah, yeah right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I have a, 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 a way that I, 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 I tell people to talk to people in nutrition specifically called either being identifying whether or not they are a cook or a baker. Mm. Right now, do you know what the difference between cooking and baking is? Well, this is an oh. apples and oranges conversation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, baking is chemistry, right? So if, if you've ever baked anything, baked a pie or baked anything, there is a very specific recipe. You follow very specific directions. You can't mix and match the order. You can't just be like, oh, was that baking soda or baking powder? It doesn't really matter. Just toss it in. Like, you're never going to bake anything well like that. Hmm. But cooking is sort of like, well, all right, get, get some oil, get some, what, what's allowed? A little bit of bell pepper. Yeah, how much onion? I don't know, two, three. Oh, yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. So Creation. If, Innovation. If you identify people, and let's say you have an athlete come in, and they say, and you say, all right, here's your nutrition program. Here's exactly what you're going to eat. You have to weigh every single thing, text it out, report it again. You know, is it seven almonds or eight almonds or nine almonds? If a person looks at you and goes, like, fantastic, that's great, I'm super excited. That person, in my mind, is a baker. The other person, though, looks at that and goes, like, oh, my gosh, this is too much information. You've, you've made me panic a little bit, and I've actually had anxiety because I, I don't want to weigh all these things. I don't. I just want some concepts. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to get to, and I'll live with it. So if I have a cook come in, and I give them a baker plan, they're going to fail. But the same thing is the opposite. If I have a, a baker who wants all that detail, I just give them a couple concepts, like, let's eat these kind of things, and let's do this. They're going to freak out because it's not enough information. Mm. So for that person, it's important that I give them a very specific plan, even if that plan isn't perfect. 
it's more important to them to have the detail of a plan in front of their face. So, again, if you grab one of my nutrition plans from one of my athletes, depending on who you looked at, you might think I'm the stupidest guy. You're like, what? You told them one serving of fat, one serving of protein, two of carbs, and that was your whole plan? Mm. But it's because I'm tailoring it to what that person needs to hear. And, and they, too much information or too little information can be a problem depending on the person I'm with and their problems. No, absolutely. Well, I, I love the analogy of a cook or a baker because that is it. I mean, you know, when, when the science warriors, you know, um, constantly going on about evidence-based this and that, and I, I tackle this a lot because as a practitioner, I'm proud of the fact that I'm evidence-informed. I'm not a robot. I'm just evidence-based. Um, but the, you know, the, the reality, the trenches of practice is you can only ever be a cook um, because you've got to deal with what's available at the time. And a true master is someone who can create something wonderful with all of those situations by thinking on their feet, adapting to everything that's going on and still achieving an outcome, which, you know, that requires yeah. some doing. So you know what we call those people? Go on. That'd be a chef. Oh, yes. Master chef. So the, the three analogies of a cook, baker, yeah. and a chef. Great. So if you understand the rules mm. at the level of a baker and you have a mastery of bakery level details, mm. then you can be a chef, which is say you break some rules from time to time because yeah. you know exactly why and everything's needed. You're not just following a recipe. You know exactly the purpose of what's going on. And chef. And you know, that's why, and I please, listeners, those of you that are doing this stuff, please don't feel insulted, but that's why if, if all you're going to do is, you know, um, try and take shortcuts to your knowledge base and, and uh, you know, not constantly grow, develop and adapt um, in these areas, um, essentially in this analogy, you're just going to be a fry cook um, yep. and you're just going to earn $30 per you know, per thing that you, you put out, whereas ultimately what, what we want to achieve is that mastery level of being a chef, you know. Yeah, so you did it, man, we're touching the same page here because yeah. that's the problem with people. They generally want to jump in, they want to be a master chef. Yeah. They haven't spent the time being a line cook yet and being mm. a baker and developing that skill set. Mm. They want to just jump in like, well, what supplement do I take? What's my quick fix? Yeah. And all right, here's my online training program. Like yeah. 30 year old. And that's a real problem. Um, you also alluded to evidence base earlier. Mm. And other people probably have covered this before, but just in case, I mean, I'm a scientist most of the time, but people misunderstand what evidence base means. Mm. Like, evidence base means doesn't, doesn't mean I do what the science tells me. Mm. It is, in my mind, it is a three part system. So one part is science, one part is expert practitioner opinion, and then one part is your personal experience, hopefully with that individual athlete or that client. Mm. The overlap of those three things in the middle, that is evidence-based. Yeah, the sweet spot. That, that, that's, that's the evidence. Like, evidence isn't just the science. The evidence is, well, you've been doing this with this client for 25 years. That is a tremendous amount of evidence you have on that person. Yeah, yeah. You, you yourself have 10 years, whatever these numbers are, of experience. That is a tremendous amount of evidence itself. So evidence doesn't mean science. Mm. Right? Yeah. There's science, there's personal, those things. Yeah, well, in my own, I mean, this is a topic for another day, but in my own research, you know, my findings include the fact that mastery as a practitioner requires 
um, three three areas, and different people have different models, but for me, there's an intersection between knowledge, context, and practice. And of course, practice yeah. is, is, you know, that involves experience, it's the doing it, but, the, the, you know, where one practices is a, you know, it's not a, it's not a clearly defined thing. There's, there's many things that, that go on, and that, I, I mean, that fits incredibly well with the, with the chef, um, you know, baker. Of course, we could add a few other things like the waiter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In the I mean, translational version of this is, uh, you know, and then it's the customer. So the lens and the ears is the uh, the yes. waiter and the, you know, but that's true. The, this translational stuff, which which is fascinating, all the way from the sciencey translational stuff, you know, molecular biology, the physiology, all this stuff, but also all the way down to, you know, my athlete's not going to eat it because he didn't like it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, oh boy, you. I had an Olympian last year that was fortunate enough to win gold in Rio, mm. and and all the the nutrition was a huge part of of how she won and why she won and all these things. So all, a lot of her interviews and media post post Olympics were about her food and her weight and all that stuff. And, and then people asked her her diet, and it was like, well, basically, like you know, it was chicken and broccoli. And everyone was like, what? Like, that's all you eat, blah, 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 like all the problems. And I'm like, well, yeah. like, okay, stop. You got to understand, when she got to Rio, we had nothing available for her. Like, the only thing we could find was chicken and broccoli. Like, this is not my ideal plan, but this was the reality situation. Also, the reality situation was, she had so much anxiety with a bunch of different things. Like, I had to simplify everything for her. Mm. I had to take things away because she'd run around going, like, oh, we had like all kinds of problems, so for that short spurt, I had to just make life actually actionable for her and make nutrition the last of her worries, so she could focus on uh, her opponent. She was a wrestler, but her opponent in the finals was a three-time defending gold medalist and like a fifteen, ten or fifteen-time straight world champion. So like there was enough anxiety here. I didn't need to add anything. To her plate of, well, you picked it, you picked it up. And I was like, you know what? They all were going here. Yep. And everything was on point, macros and calories wise, the best we could assume. And like, that, that's it. So, yeah. Um, but man, I love that epistemology thing. That three point system, I'm going to ask you to say that one more time. You said knowledge, context, and what? Practice. Yeah, knowledge, context, and practice, and then I'll I'll send you over. That's I'll I'll send you over my uh, my work. I mean, I've I'm. Um, I, I'm planning to get something published in um, ACSM Translational Journal on this particular topic off the back of that. Um, I'll leave it at that just in case it doesn't get through. Um, yeah. But um, uh, in fact, with um, a previous podcast um, uh, interviewee was Joey Eisenman. You probably know him. Um, mm. he, uh, he and I got a lot of shared interest in this stuff, so uh, there might be some stuff there. But um, no, I've, I've got all sorts of stuff I'm, I'm going to put out on this because, I, you know, I'm not the scientist, but I am a practitioner. Um, and it's been a, you know, it, it's an interesting um, situation to be in, in the restaurant <laughs> that, we're, yeah, yeah. That, we, that we call practice. And it's such a great analogy because it is true. But to bring this a little bit onto the topic of yeah, conversation. Yeah, sorry, I get lost on No, no, I, I, I did. Yeah. Look, I, I, you know, look. I ordered, I ordered the onion soup, but the waiter, <laughs> but but the waiter came back and said, "Sorry, uh, there's none left." So we've had to choose something else. So that's just the way this goes. 
Um, but the chef is a master and he's cooked me up something even better. So there you go. Um, so um, a lot of this stuff lends a lot of weight to, you know, to, to what I really wanted to talk about. Because people can read the science. Um, they can attend all the lectures they want about the science. But this is where I feel we can really help people is, is understanding how they should see and interpret this information. And just be careful about how they apply it in practice. But just so we can add just a bit more context here. Um, when we're talking about strength and conditioning, because, I mean... I mean, that in itself is interesting. And I think a lot, a lot of times nutritionists who, who do take the science a bit too seriously sometimes forget that the nutrition may not be as influential as they might think. Um, <laughs> um, and you used an interesting analogy that I thought was important because I too have a lot of athletes that travel, various teams I've worked with or individual athletes. And sometimes you just got to remember that there are other reasons why they may not, um, eat anything that's on the menu because it, you know it, it, some destinations are not you know necessarily hygienic. Um, the food, I mean, there's cultural issues, of course, where you know they used to eat in a certain way, they end up somewhere else, and they've got some local cuisine that's basically just unpalatable to someone else. All these things lend weight to reducing it to something like chicken and broccoli so i totally get it but that does not mean that they're not going to perform as well um yeah. and and i think the anxiety that is induced by thinking that it's more important than it is i mean i say yeah. this as my whole thing's about performance nutrition and boom here am i saying it's not that important yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but it might not be but it is the context issue but for you and yeah. your area of expertise because i want to bring this into you know, how muscle, for example, responds to exercise and the relevance of, you know, the alteration of, of nutrients and hormones in that sort of internal milieu, you know, the, 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 the acute response um, by muscle to a given stimulus, for example, um, you know, how, how all these environmental factors from an acute perspective, how, how important are they really? When it comes to performance in the trenches, um, you know, is that something you can answer, you think? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, so it depends on the context. So I'll actually, it's going to sound like I'm disagreeing with you, but I'm agreeing with you. No, go for it, yeah. So in terms of, if you look at something like, for example, we have a study that we just started where we're looking at the post-exercise anabolic window, mm. right? And so what this means is, uh, we take biopsies before they do a bout of exercise, and we take biopsies, uh, three biopsies over the course of four or five hours plus exercise. But where we differ is all of my analyses happen at the single muscle fiber level and at the fiber type specific level. And so we're looking at, we're not, uh, the post exercise anabolic window is not the primary measure, but we're just looking at a bunch of substrates. Um, and a bunch of the protein signaling proteins that are important for that. And so one of the things that we found in our preliminary stuff, and uh, again, be careful here, this is prelim, so the answer might be different when we finish, but I'm, I'm confident to say this, mm. or I wouldn't say it. But one of the things that we found is, depending on the fiber type, the fast twitch versus the slow twitch, or even the different types of fast twitch fibers, how sensitive they are to nutrients post-exercise is hours different. So some of them are hypersensitive with 
up to an hour, but then after that, they actually go back down. And then some of them are actually optimized three to four hours post-exercise. Mm. Now, we haven't started messing with different nutrients and timings or anything like that. We just looked at their sensitivity. Um, so whether they activated, are they phosphorylated or not. I don't know if this is going to translate into anything once we start adding in foods, especially if we start adding different foods. So here's an example of me saying, well, yeah, it completely matters. Um, and if we gave these folks a bolus of carbohydrate right before that exercise, I guarantee you these answers would totally change. And we would see 200, 300-fold, I mean, 5x increases or decreases in activation. So, yeah, it matters. It changes at 500%. But whether or not that actually happens then when we add this into a situation where we say, well, let's just not have them come in, in off of 72 hours of fast or of no activity on a 16-hour fast, no exercise post. When you start throwing food into the mix and you start throwing mixed macronutrients, especially in the mix, like a you know, normal athlete diet, well, then probably the difference, individual difference, is probably far less than the actual uh different variability between the people, meaning it probably doesn't matter. And, and the, the fundamental breakdown is people's lack of understanding of, of very basic biochemistry, especially with fat and carbohydrate, and not understanding how easy it is for those two things to move back and forth, and, and how easy it is for a resistant starch to generate a medium chain fatty acid, or for you to generate the both gluconeogenesis. So it becomes um, very questionable how important things like, oh, are you 60% fat or 40% fat versus carbohydrate? And in my mind, like a huge chunk of it, especially really close to competition, eh, I, I don't think that stuff is super important. And I don't think it's really important for us to spend hours and hours and hours debating about whether it's 1.2 grams or 1.6 grams uh, if we can, but I, I don't really think that that's going to translate much into performance differences. Um, it should be an option always. So if you're not getting the results and the performance you want, say, well, maybe let's go up or let's go down. But as like a hard and fast rule, like this is our answer. It's four to one post-exercise. That's what we do. Like that's a bit silly. Um, it's well, Number one, it's we don't have evidence enough to suggest that. Number two, putting that into practice is going to be basically impossible. So... Yeah, it totally matters, but it also, I don't stress too much about it. If that's the best answer for you, in terms of my athletes, I'm not freaking out about that. Yeah, and I've, I mean, I completely agree with you. That's pretty much what all the other people have, you yeah. know, have said on this podcast is, and the reason why I make a point of this is, it does, but does it really matter? I mean, the phraseology I use is, you can, but should you? It's yeah, like, sure. It's sure. like, yeah, yeah, it does. Here's the science. Boom, science. Boom, science. Yeah, but shut up. <laughs> yeah. It's not. It's not actually that relevant in reality. What is probably so, more relevant? Well, now you say what you're going to say, and then I'll come back to what I was going to say. Well, I was going to say. Um, here's the thing, too, is like you can spend and, and, and rip your hair out trying to optimize and come up with a perfect combination, mm. but if you're not there with the athlete, cooking all the food. You have no idea what those numbers are going to look like. Like, just no clue. I can just tell you, um, you know, sending athletes to Mongolia and sending them to, to, to even Hawaii and things like this where 
like, like you're like, all right, here's the plan. We're going to eat this much fat, protein, etc. You could tell them this is many ounces of, of, of all the kale and cabbage and all the stuff that you want to get. When they get to try to actually implement that, they don't understand and have the time to be able to, to line up all the numbers. If they're not cooking, weighing, measuring, figuring out, looking at the package, how is this prepared, uh, how is this prepared, and they go through all that because the way you cook um, food influences its, its bioavailability, right? So even like a potato, if it's baked or boiled, that influences how quickly it gets in the bloodstream. So if you just say, like, eat a potato, and you're not paying attention to how it's prepared, well, then your numbers just completely change. Or what it's so, combined with. What's that? Or what it's combined with. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, what about colon ingestion? So, oh, yeah. you had a bunch of magnesium, so now what happened to your zinc? Yeah. Like, yeah. So, yeah, it gets, it, yes, um, I mean, we should continue to strive for more information, because more information in the hands of the experts is helpful. But we do have to be pretty realistic about, okay, maybe this is not the biggest fish to fry at the moment, and it may not matter that much. The body's not that precious. Like, it doesn't care. It's not that sensitive to where it can't figure out a way to make something a little bit, if it's only got 40% of what it needs, or 80% of what it needs. It can figure out a way a lot of times. It's not that precious. No, of course. Well, I mean, that's why, no, that's why knowledge is both powerful and dangerous, because... It's usually the ignorance of one's own yeah. ignorance, which we call the epistemology of ignorance. There you go, right? <laughs> so, so, the, but the ignorance of one's own ignorance, which which correlates rather well with um, lack of experience. Um, <laughs> Dunning and Kruger, Dunning and Kruger have got um, started yes, off yeah. this whole thing. So that, that that all, that, I mean, that's a whole other topic. That is, but you, you know, again, a lot of things that will differentiate a a master chef from, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a beginner in our analogy here is the master chef has, has effed up a lot of times and learned from yep. those mistakes and found the shortcuts, the, the, the ways to adapt. And that, that, um, is what helps us differentiate as an expert well, practitioner. The chef is, because of the dining kruger is aware of his own ignorance or her ignorance. Yes. So the, the chef is a lot less likely to step out of his expertise. Exactly. Scope of practice in this context. And that, yeah. I mean, that is, yeah, well, okay, now that, we're, 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 we're on the edge of dangerous Sorry, ground. Sorry, man. <laughs> the, 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 that will come, we're going, I'm going to reel this back. Um, so, um, and just to bring it back to my own research, that, that's why I feel that this intersection between knowledge, context, and practice, the sweet spot is like the target, the site, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, the, the, the area that actually we should be aiming for. And that target constantly moves around, um, but you need those three things. Like you need uh, three satellites for a GPS fix. Is, yeah, is well, okay, like, so I don't even know if you're going at this, uh, but I can't let this one pass. Do it, do it. <laughs> You talked about the moving target. Yeah. So this is another thing that, that scientists just don't pay attention to. Hmm. The, the target is constantly moving with an athlete. So now they're a year older, or they weigh 10 pounds more, hmm. or they're, and, and I deal with this in combat sports. So we will alter a little bit of our nutrition based on their opponent. So what I mean by that is, is if, if I have an athlete who's competing against um, a wrestler, I know that generally this, this wrestler that he's fighting is going to push a really high pace, 
is going to be constantly on him. It's going to be no breaks. It's going to be just really grinding. Well, we need to be physiologically prepared for that. So we're going to alter nutrition a little bit and mostly, but mostly training so that you're prepared for that. Another person, maybe who's a, a, a real knockout artist, but they really take their time and look for big shots, we're going to change it so we can be prepared for that. So we need to be able to handle this type of pace or, or the game plan is to do this. And so because of that, we need to get you prepared to do A, B, and C. Oh, but now you hurt your knee halfway through a training camp. So we can't get the... Okay, so here's what, i got to change calories. i got to change macronutrients because this is going on. We don't have this ability. Oh, boom. And then, oh, yeah, you got to go to Brazil for a week to do media. Oh, so now you're going to be in Brazil. What are we going to do? Send you the canton fish down there? So the, the, the target is constant from moving strength. Yeah. doesn't account for that at all. Um, the goal will change the weight of it, depending on the race it's coming up with a hill sprint, is it a flat road? Like, well, this is going to alter everything, and the reality is like, you're just not going to know until you've been through it with an athlete, and then you can go, oh, okay, well, remember that one time we tried this, and you just tanked? Yeah, okay, well, that's what the science said, that it works, so we're going to try something else because you, 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 know, you got crushed halfway through the race. So, as you were saying that, you made me think of a couple of things that you would be certainly one of the guys that I could ask this. So, as it relates to the muscle and how it's functioning, let's take one of your fighters. I also work with UFC and boxers and stuff. And, nice. And, um, yeah. And, and uh, with, the, uh, with the way that muscle's uh, functioning, we're obviously assuming it's all, you know, got some nice glycogen in there and... You know, everything's all working nicely. But but what about when someone's beating the shit out of you? And, <laughs> you know, there's, there's going to be some changes to the hormonal milieu, possibly. But also, what happens if that muscle itself is also getting pounded by someone's foot or fist? Um, yeah. You know, is, is that also something um, that would affect how the muscle would function? Well, you know, we've actually <laughs> done biopsies of a lot of these folks. Yeah. Problem is we can't get like a biopsy As it after the muscle's been yeah or yeah. after it's been smashed a bunch because it tends yeah. to be very sore. Uh, but yeah, like if you don't think that that physical damage has any influence on the hormonal profile, you're again you're being very silly. Um, yeah, like you can you can talk about this in terms of you could bring in an, an inflammation expert all you want, uh, and and they could tell you about exactly what inflammation or not or recovery. In cycling, maybe, but I don't know anyone who really knows what's going on when you combine physical damage, yeah. which almost no other sports have to deal with. So, like, shit changes, yeah, real fast like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And a lot of it is we don't know. Like, we don't have any data on that, so we, we do not know what's going on. Um, we we start to make a bunch of guesses, and this is honestly why folks like like me and you that or you and I that work in this field. We'll try some weird stuff nutritionally or training-wise because I'm like, you know, this is what's happening and I don't know. There's no study that I can go to call up like, what's optimal for recovery after a combination of 20 hours of training a week plus physical trauma every other day? Like, I don't know what to do. So we, we just try things. Uh, muscle damage-wise, though, yeah, I mean, like, these dudes are constantly, like, they're in this sport to hurt themselves or to hurt others. So they're constantly damaged. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's fascinating. It's also fascinating is just how robust the human body actually is. I think sometimes we underestimate just how robust it is. But yeah. The, 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 you, want some, you want some muscle data on this? So I can give you some. Go on, do it, do it, do it. Uh, yeah. So 
we have vibes in some of these folks, and I presented this at, uh, at ACSM um, and some other places, and maybe some papers coming eventually, but we'll so see. my point is, yeah. this is not published already. Yeah. So if you're one of those, like, if it's not published, it doesn't count, fine. Um, yeah. But I want to be upfront about that so you can so I, judge. That, like. that, there's only about a million listeners, but <laughs> apart yeah. from them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, so we've actually some folks, and we've looked at several things. Um, and these these gentlemen, uh, especially at the UFC level, tend to be very, very, very fast twitch. Yeah. So 70, 75, up to almost eighty percent fast twitch. But what's really interesting is, um, are you familiar with the mononuclei? Yeah. Uh, they yes. Operate yes. Yeah. Not as an expert, but yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So for those of you that maybe aren't, just very quickly. The nucleus is what controls the cell, so it holds DNA, and human skeletal muscle is very unique. It's one of the biggest cells in all of biology by volume. And you know, you remember from your from your undergraduate studies that it's multinucleate. And so what that means is it doesn't have just like two or three nuclei, because most cells in biology have one nucleus per cell. But human tissue, human muscle, skeletal muscle has thousands of nuclei per cell. And what makes that very unique is it gives us almost um, unimaginable plasticity. Because the point of the nucleus is to determine whether or not or how the cell grows, shrinks, repairs, dies. So the more control centers you have, the quicker you are to respond to damage or inflammation or anything like that. So these UFC folks, um, one of the things that we do in our lab with my colleague, um, Dr. Jimmy Bagley at San Francisco State, he uses a laser scanning control for microscope and with these single fibers underneath them, and we can tag them for mitochondria, actin, or myosin, um, and the nuclei. And we look at them in three dimensions, and so that we can count how many nuclei they have. We can also count where at the cell they are, their shape, their motility, and a bunch of different things. And so what you can end up getting is this thing called mononuclear domain. So that effectively tells you how much physical area does each nuclei control. Hmm. Right? And so why that's important, and this is super preliminary, not only from my study, but the field in general, we're, we're just trying to figure out what the nuclei do in, in this context. But the, the obvious assumption would be the smaller the mononuclear domain, the better you are at recovering and adapting. Right? And so the, the analogy would be if you open up a business and you had 12 managers versus one manager in the building, well, the, when you have 12 managers in there and they all each are only in control of, of a 10-foot radius, anything that happens in that 10-foot radius is going to be dealt with very quickly. But if one manager is trying to control 300 feet of square, or square feet, you, you get the idea here, right? Or difficult. So with the UFC fighters in particular, um, they seem to be having an almost, I mean, quite literally off the charts, Low or low mononuclear domains, which is to say their fibers are not actually very big. So most people think their muscle fibers must be huge, and they're not. They're not very big, but they have a tremendous amount of nuclei packed into them. So they're literally off the charts for the normative values. And so I think this is one of the reasons why they were able to handle the training they're able to handle. So whether this is nature versus nurture, so they got good at the sport because they had this, or you go to training, I don't know. Uh, it's just 
cross-sectional, right? We don't longitudinal stuff, but this is, I think, one of the things that's interesting about them is the reason they can handle a combination of unbelievable training volume with physical damage is, you know, one of the many, many, many reasons is probably because their mononuclear domain is very, very small. Yeah. So, see, we got to some science. We got to something. We got a bit in there. Um, that's probably why I've ended up not being an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what my gifts are, but anyway, yeah. um, cooking actually. There you go. So yeah, hey. All right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm pleased you you mentioned that because one of the things I did want to get into was the plasticity of muscle and how it is not a fixed thing. Uh, again, it's one of those illusions oh. that you know we're dealing with something that's going to respond just like it says in a textbook, um, <laughs> which which is why. And in, I'm hoping you're going to agree with me, which is why, I, and I have a real big thing about this, is if you want to be a sports nutritionist, a performance nutritionist, you also need to understand exercise science, exercise physiology, these sorts of things, and strength conditioning. So you need to know in what context is this even going to get applied, blah, 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 rather than you can't just be a dietitian or a nutritionist, you can't just be a sports scientist, you do need an amalgamation of those things. Yeah, as well as chemistry. Of course. You have to be like I, I I laugh I get cracked up and people are like oh I love nutrition I love nutrition mm. and I say what do you think about chemistry like, oh I hate chemistry yeah what do you think you're doing as a nutritionist yeah yeah like this is chemistry and I would agree with the second point like you have to other exercise scientists strength conditioning coaches like this is it because you're feeling the body to do a target but you don't understand anything about how to get to the target and you're speaking my language there are lots of people out there who will be look you don't need to do all this sciencey stuff. Um, just learn how to coach people with nutrition, let's say. Just the, that's fine, but all you're gonna you're just gonna stay a fry cooker or at best a baker. You're, yeah, you're never gonna be that master because you you need you need to understand the mechanisms. You need to understand the chemistry to a certain level to at least differentiate quality from flawed knowledge, so that you then yeah. know how to apply that appropriately into practice, or more importantly, when not to. Yeah, yeah, and, and that would actually probably be the far more realistic yeah. case is what to avoid and go, ah, let's not waste our time here. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with the Pareto rule? Yes, I am, as it happens, yeah. So this is, you know, 80-20 principle. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good example of what you just said. Mm. If you understand the chemistry a little bit, then applying the Pareto principle or the Pareto rule becomes way easier than saying, like, there's a trillion things we could do. Yeah. What's the 20%... Of the things I'm going to give to my client, that's going to give me 80% of the benefit. Yeah. And and that's the intersection of science and application is, is something like that. So yeah, if you, the more you understand, the more you can translate and go, okay, there's maybe potential plausible mechanism benefit here, but it looks like a marginal improvement with a lot of investment, potential unknowns. It's not worth my Pareto rule. It's out. Yeah. Yeah. I think to be fair, what where. I think where that can go wrong is people go down one path. So they go down just, you know, basic science, intermediate science, advanced science, maybe get their PhD. Yeah. But <clears throat> you, you need you need the other things. Um, you need to coach. You need to know how to train. You need to that. You know, I think if, to be a to be that chef, that master trainer, that master practitioner. It's very very easy. It, it takes. I mean, literally seconds. I mean, identify somebody in science, particularly, that has never actually trained an athlete. Mm. Like, and I'm not knocking them, but they, they should probably be very careful with their with going around the Gatorade or going around to somebody else and saying, like, oh, this is what you, you people should do. 
Yeah. Like, if you're not an athlete, you don't work with athletes. Um, you well, should be very careful of what you say here because I can tell that very, very quickly. The same thing with coaches on the other side. I can tell you don't understand what's well, it's, it's, when people talk about scope of practice, we, we, we also need to have a scope of interpretation, a, a scope of, you know, I, I, think, I think there's many, I mean, it is definitely another conversation that, but it, it is part of this translational conversation. Um, yeah. it, it, it's not a one-way process. It goes multiple ways. But when we talk about the Dunning-Kruger thing, when we talk about you know, epistemological ignorance. It, it, that is that is very much it. And it's not an insult necessarily, but, it, it, you no. know, I was definitely ignorant early in my career. I just didn't know about it. And, but, you know, hey, what the hell? We, we're all, we all learn, we all grow and develop. And that's why people like you and I have these conversations and hopefully but, some people can benefit. Yeah, and there's an easy, there's an easy way out of this because... Mm. We, you and I got lucky that we didn't have Twitter when we were students. Oh, man. Like, <laughs> right? Like, if I had Facebook and... It was still black and white in my day, mate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, well, I was said, and I did say a bunch of stuff. I said a bunch of really stupid things and arrogant things. Just nobody heard because I you know, only had yeah. friends that were listening. Yeah. But the easy way around that is as you're developing and you're working your way into becoming a chef, my general answer is... Be a learner, mm. not a knower. Yeah. Especially with your social media stuff. Like you may have some good experience and it's absolutely fine and you should tell people your opinion and things like that. But it needs to be under the umbrella of this is what I've experienced, this is what I think. You yeah. can't plant a flag in knowledge and like no, this I is how it works because I just graduated with my master's degree and I've I trained agree. three and a half people now. And like it's like no, come I on. Agree. So if you embrace it with a little bit of ignorance to say like this is this is what I think right now because of A, B, and C. Yeah. And there's no blowback, and, and you have an easy out when you learn more information. Because I mean, this happens to us all the time. I can give you. I mean, my true expertise in muscle fiber type is the best example of the science was dead for 20, 30 years that muscle fiber types don't change with exercise mm. until we found out it does. Right. And, and not only does it, but now we've had 30 years of research is suggesting like, oh yeah, it changes. And every single time we measure it, it changes. So like there's not even a discussion anymore. But 30 years ago, it was the same exact knowledge, but in the opposite answer. Yeah. So, I mean, the funny analogy that people say is like 50% of what we know is wrong. 50% of what I teach my students in nutrition is wrong. I just don't know what 50% it is. But also, also what, what people... What people will say is wrong now was probably right a while ago. So if you want to talk <laughs> yeah. about evidence, I mean, that target moves all the time, which is why, you know, I think that it's, a lot of people like to troll people or call people out. But you know what? There might be rationale behind why people think they are. So maybe we should help people rather than try yes. shit on them all the time, you know. Exactly. And yeah. like, well, that's a good one, too. Like, yeah. how many things have you... Have you, have you seen from the 70s or 80s where you're like, this is stupid, this is bro science, this is bro science, and now like, now we're like, actually, that was, that was pretty good. That, yeah. was, that was right. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> it. All in, the, the time. in the continuum of bro science is, is it started off as science, became bro science, and then it's next year's Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? Or should we call it Brobel Prize? <laughs> yeah. Like, those yeah. dudes got some good ideas sometimes. I like, that's how my students said all the time. I'm like, uh, don't don't dismiss the bro science too much. The problem is uh, mm. 
and I promise this is the last time we get into reasoning and logic. Yeah. But is this thing called the fallacy of the fallacy? Mm. Which is to say, now this gets a bit wordy, so um, we have yeah. to right. slap yourself. I can yourself handle it. I can handle it. Go for it. So just because I can prove, now we've already discussed what prove means, but let me pass it there. Mm. Just because we can prove or disprove, in this case, the rationale behind a contention, that doesn't necessarily prove or disprove the legitimacy of the contention itself. So, for example, I could say um, carbohydrates, my contention is carbohydrates are always good for you. Alright, so then, okay, let's look at the evidence. Oh, I find one study that shows carbohydrate post-exercise in an obese, diabetic old person had a negative health effect. Well, that doesn't actually really prove or disprove the actual contention because there's a lot of different things underneath that umbrella. So we have to be careful about that, and the strength conditioning examples are very, very, very easy with, oh, we'll do one study looking at um, different types of squatting, and they'll have one or two or three outcome measures, but maybe they didn't pick the right outcome measure. And this is where technology and science limits us, is because we're only as good as what we think about measuring and the technology that allows us to measure it. As we increase that technology and as we expand the field, we start to realize, oh, you know what? This type of training, it didn't do anything for A, B, C, and D, but actually it's amazing for F. Yeah. And so that didn't actually prove or disprove the thing. Um, the one I used, my, here's an, an easy strength conditioning example of this. So say you went to a talk and, and your practitioner, or you were given a great talk about um, Thank you very why it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm already lost your error. Okay, yeah, that, that's not going to happen. Unrealistic. Um, no, so you're going to talk and you said something simple like the practitioner would say, um, hey, uh, I like to do this warm-up drill or this cool-down drill after training. This is what I like to use with my guys and gals. Okay, great. Well, scientists can stand up and say, like, well, prove to me, prove to me that cool-down drill actually helps your, your athletes. And then, okay, so you design a study and you say, all right, uh, or the practitioner says, well, it's good because it helps clear the lactic acid out of the muscle. Well, you could do a study very easy and show actually that cooldown thing didn't matter at all for lactic acid. Therefore, I proved this practitioner is wrong. No, you just proved he was wrong for that reason. That doesn't actually prove the fact that cooldown wasn't a good idea because that's a generally accepted good practice. So that's the real problem, or that's one of the problems with these things as well, is understanding just because you pick one or two variables underneath the contention, that may or may not prove the contention itself is valid or invalid. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, totally. You have to be careful about stuff. Yeah, no, well, I mean, look, we could go on for hours about this stuff. I mean, my biggest problem now is trying to determine what I actually name this episode, so thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> dear, oh dear. Um, Sorry, listen, I just got done doing a Joe Rogan's podcast yesterday, so yeah, I'm, I'm in the universe of big time. crap every... It's the big time. Um, no, it's been great. Look, it's been wonderful to chat with you, and um, I'm really pleased that you, um, you know, found the time. Uh, it's been interesting. Uh, folks won't see this because we're only recording audio, but when I started talking to you, it was pitch black outside through your uh, window, and now, now it's light. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one way or the other, we've uh, introduced you to the beginning of your day. So, um, so uh, thank you. Um, we briefly mentioned at the beginning. 
um, about your book and your papers and where you work and so on. Your mm. uh, just just tell everyone what your uh, Twitter and website and uh, just briefly about your book. Yeah, so um, my social media is just dr like doctor, so dr Andy Galpin. Uh, my website is andygalpin.com. And as I, as I mentioned very quickly at the beginning, uh, the goal of that website is to take every bit of lecture, every conference talk, um, every class lecture I do, and put it up on that website for free. Uh, there's no subscription, there's no newsletter to sign up for, there's no service, nothing. It's just free. Um, and you've got some great little physiology lectures. I've, I've watched a couple, actually. They're, they're all yeah, awesome, so I, everyone I should have, watch those. I'm pretty, well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. Um, but I do it in three ways. Uh, one is called five-minute physiology. So I try to keep those answers, you know, five minutes or so, or those topics. And then with 25-minute physiology, which is usually this is the answer and this is how it's working. And then the 25-minute or 55-minute physiology is where I just usually explode and just, you know, like for example, I think my fiber type, you know, does fiber type change? Yeah. I think that 55-minute physiology episode is like three and a half hours. So I got, I got a little on the top on that one. <laughs> awesome. Um, but that's all up. That's on YouTube as well. The book is called Unplugged. Uh, Evolve from technology to upgrade your fitness, performance, and consciousness. And that's up on Amazon and everywhere. And really what that is is a guide to how to use technology and how to not let it ruin your training. So everything from heart rate monitors, Fitbits, HRV, you name it. Um, how it can help coaches and how actually it can ruin you, whether it's you as the athlete or, or coaches. So, yeah, well, I, that, actually, that should be another podcast we should do at some point if you're up for it. Um, oh, definitely. I've never, yeah. I've, I'm, I have gotten into those topics a bit, but that would be awesome. So, um, I'll, yeah. we'll talk about it another time. Maybe, folks, maybe. Yeah. Um, the last one is uh, just yeah. quickly, it's, um, I think I brought my podcast up, but I don't know if I told you the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it called? Got to listen. It's called The Body of Knowledge. Body of knowledge. Cool. Yeah, so it's just nine episodes, and we, we write stories and kind of craft them together, spend a month or two on an episode. Great. Uh, we'll we'll start via, working on That's all via a website, isn't it, Andy Galpin? Uh, no, that's on the... Oh, there might be a link on my website. It is. But it's I've, on, seen and, it. I've seen it. There you go. Come yeah. on, know your own website. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Some of us have real jobs. I don't have time to waste on my oh, website. Oh, man. Um, yeah, okay, well, everyone uh, knows about me. Uh, of course, uh, guruperformance.com for all our own outputs, um, infographics, uh, info videos, uh, our published papers, our technical articles we've done, and of course, the uh, ISSM Diploma and Sport and Exercise Nutrition. Um, I, of course, am Laurel Brannock and look forward to bringing another podcast to you folks all uh, very soon. So once again, thank you very much, Andy. Hey, it's been a pleasure, man. I've actually been a fan for quite some time. So oh, man. Long. Man, I'm going to have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, thanks, Barry. Thanks, Barry.